We're going to start today's episode off with a warning. The content of this episode does include mentions and discussion of racial violence, so I encourage any listener under the age of 13, 15 to go ahead and turn the episode off. Otherwise, we're going to get started. A lot of us, when we think about Halloween, one of the first images that we conjure is that of a haunted house. If I were to ask you, dear listener, to close your eyes and picture what you think of when I say, imagine a haunted house, I can say with some certainty that I think the image you're conjuring is that of a beautiful but potentially dilapidated Victorian structure, a home that has a lot of ornate decorations that was probably once a place full of splendor and magic and over time has gone to the dogs, as it were. Something that the owners maybe lovingly and painstakingly invested their time and energy in constructing and subsequently due to the unfortunate series of events which now leads to the haunting, The house in question has completely fallen apart, or has started to. It's old, dusty, crusty, maybe filled with cobwebs. If you're feeling really adventurous in your imagination, you might be thinking about the poor, unsuspecting family who has purchased this home as a down-on-their-luck, last-chance effort to do a flip and make some money. These are really popular tropes in our haunted tales, our our stories about haunted homes. A big reason for this is the popularity of ghost stories as we know it today really began in the Victorian era. One of the ways that people passed the time was by telling ghost stories or haunted stories. Some of the most famous spooky and creepy tales that we know today are the result of these Uh, brain trust-esque meetings of writers. In fact, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, as I'm sure many of you listening probably already know, was conjured up during a very rainy trip to Italy. And the homeward bound or homebound nature of the trip led to the writers who were there together to come up with the scariest stories that they could think of. And thus, Frankenstein was born. Now, those of us who live in central Kentucky might conjure a little bit of a different image of a haunted house. Some of us might think of farmhouses on hundreds of open pastoral acres. This image is a lot more popular in this area because we're surrounded, of course, by tobacco farms and other types of agricultural prospects. When we think about scary stories, we're often pulling from what we experience, the things that we know, the things that we see, and that is the structure for how we tell our stories. So not to get too theoretical here, but a big reason for this is because when we are telling stories, we are always doing it for an audience. These audiences can vary on age, gender, 
occupation, location, pretty much any kind of audience description you can think of here. And when we're telling a story to any given audience, we change the details that we add to suit that audience. A big reason for this is that we recognize implicitly and oftentimes explicitly that the way we tell a story can determine its successfulness, the degree to which our audience pays attention, that they listen to us, that they hear what we're saying, that they respond to or have the reaction that we want them to have. So for telling a story that comes out of central Kentucky, it shouldn't be a surprise that we're going to start with this latter form of haunted home, the beautiful pastoral farmhouse on hundreds of open acres of land. Let's add in a few trees, maybe some creeks, and a backdrop of the Kentucky River, and you have the perfect haunted home. If you're someone who likes to look up a place that we're talking about, then I will share with you that this home is located in Bald Knob, a small development slash neighborhood slash community in Franklin County, Kentucky. This farmhouse in Bald Knob gained its reputation as a haunted home during the 1970s and 80s when the Bishop family purchased the property. They did so because it was a beautiful, secluded area that had a lot of gorgeous land attached to the house. The house itself is a stone structure, one that dates back to the 1800s. The owners at the time of the reported incidents were Reed and Barbara Bishop. The Bishops lived in this beautiful old stone home with their two children, Kevin and Keenan. It is this family's first-person reports of spooky incidences at this home that lead to the foundation of the legend of the Weeping Widow of Stony Creek. Published by State Journal reporter Philip Case in the 90s, the legend is brief and goes something like this. She watched from the window of their bedroom as her lover hid in the weeds near the barn. As her husband approached, leading his horse to pasture, he sprang up from his hiding place, leveled his shotgun at the unsuspecting farmer, and shot him. He died on the spot. We're going to return to the Bishop family and the sightings that Barbara and her sons experienced here in a little bit, but I actually want to start with some historical notations. That's because this legend, while an intriguing snippet dealing with infidelity and murder, is based on a historical truth. That is the murder or assassination of Charles Penn. The date of Penn's death was July 7th, 1882. The events surrounding the death are not fully known to us today, but we do have a very neat and concise history thanks to the newspapers that were published at the time that have since been republished in various other formats. The story, as most of us know it, comes from a 1912 publication by L.F. Johnson on the history of Franklin County, Kentucky. This history was reprinted in 1975 by Historic Frankfurt Press. 
it can be a little dry to read through, but it is a truly fascinating encapsulation of the history of Frankfort and Franklin County. On July 7th, Charles Penn was assassinated near his home while taking his horse to the pasture. And a few moments after he left his house, two shots were fired. Upon investigation, the body of Penn was found not far from the bars leading to the pasture. He received the contents of a double-barrel shotgun, which was loaded with buckshot. The condition of the ground and the weeds at the place of the murder disclosed the fact that the assassin had been lying in wait for his victim for some time, and that the assassination had been well-planned. Suspicion soon rested on a man by the name of George Gaines, who was arrested in a short time afterwards and in due course of time was tried and convicted and sent to the penitentiary for life. The general supposition was that the wife of Penn was indirectly the cause of his death. There are a few key pieces of information that are left out from this Johnson's History of Franklin County, Kentucky excerpt. Most importantly among these is that Charles Penn was a white man and George Gaines was a black man who was employed by Penn at the time of his death. The wife too is not named here, but we know thanks to history and ancestry and genealogy that her name was Emily Penn. Let's dig a little bit more into the background of some of these key players here. Now, this is going to be a bit lopsided in terms of the information I'm able to provide. And the reason for this is the racist history of our country. So as George Gaines was a black man at the time, his records are sparse, if not non-existent. So it, it's really difficult to piece together some of his history. I do, however, have a little bit on Charles R. Penn. Charles Penn was born on July 28, 1859 in Kentucky. Uh, we're not quite sure where, just that's uh, when he was born, sort of. Uh, actually, a later date uh, publication regarding his death identified his birthday as July 27th. So it's a fun guess as to which was actually his date of birth. His residence at the 1870s U.S. sentence census was Bald Knob in Franklin County, and he was listed as a farmhand. He worked on a farm. That's what he did at age 11, and he lived with his extended family at the time. On the 1880 census, he is listed as married to one Emily Penn, and he and Emily also are living at the same location in Bald Knob, and he is still working as a farmhand. He's age 21 at the time of the census. By his death on July 7th, 1882, he is aged 22 years old. His wife, Emily Penn, is also born around the same time, 1859. We do know, thanks to census records, that she was about a year younger or so than Charles. Her birthday is sometimes stated as late February, and she too lived on the farm uh, and worked. For reasons that were made public during the trial of George Gaines, he was the number one suspect for the murder of Charles Penn. Immediately after the body of Charles was found, 
the governor at the time actually offered a $300 bounty for the capture of George Gaines. From the Stanford paper published on July 18th, 1882, we know that George Gaines was captured by the father-in-law of Charles, aka Emily's dad, and he did receive the $300 bounty. Due to the salacious nature of the crime and the racial implications behind it, there were immediate threats of lynching. It is reported that the jailhouse was kept constantly under guard in fear that these threats would become actuality. A few days later, on July 18th, the preliminary trial began. Attorneys John L. Scott and Ira Julian defended Gaines, while W.N. Julian, the county attorney, and James A. Scott and Sidney French were prosecuting Gaines for the Commonwealth and the county. The trial was overseen by Squires McDonald and Bohannon. The trial was a big part of Kentucky news at the time. People were very invested in the outcome of said trial. This was in large part, again, due to the salacious nature. The Courier-Journal, which is Louisville's native paper, had exclusive rights to the publication of some of the witness testimony and defense from the trial. The trial opened with the testimony of Robert Penn, who was the uncle of Charles Penn. His testimony reads as follows. Charles's wife came to my house after me and asked me if I wouldn't go down with her to look for Charles, that a gun was fired and she believed he was killed. She was crying. We started for the place where the shooting occurred and I told her that I did not think he was killed, but she said she knew he was killed. Sometime during that week, a tall-looking man dressed in black came up the hill towards our house and was in Charles's yard. I think it was between 9 and 10 o'clock. The man had a long coat and would suit for a man of Gaines's size. Can't say I naturally love Charles Penn, but had no prejudice against him or anyone else. Charlie and I were on speaking terms. When Mrs. Penn found the body, she threw her arms around it, patted its cheeks, and kissed it. Mrs. Maddie Penn, second wife of Hiram Penn, was the stepmother of Charles and told me when he quit, he and Charlie had a quarrel. Gaines slept on a bed in the same room with Charles and his wife when I lived in part of Charles's house. Gaines told me that he liked Emma, Mrs. Penn, but did not like Charlie. I was standing in the hall on Sunday and heard Gaines and Emma talking upstairs. Something was said about eyes and I heard Emma say that he had pretty eyes. He replied that she was the only person who ever told him that. She said he reminded her of her brother. I never saw any misbehavior between them. Charles was at home somewhere when the conversation took place, and he knew that Gaines was about the house. It had been four or five months since Gaines told me of the quarrel between him and Charlie. Mrs. Penn tried to get Gaines to return to the house after he quit and said it was on Charlie's account. She was all the time after him to come back to work and said if Charlie did not get Gaines, she did not want any hand at all. So this testimony brings to light a few things and I think provides good context for why this trial was so closely followed. We hear about a potentially and truly salacious sounding relationship between Gaines, again, a black man, and Emma Penn, Emily Penn, a white woman. 
They are reported to have shared a bed with Charles as well. And, and to keep in context here too, sharing beds at this time was not completely unheard of. It, it was a pretty solid move in the dead of winter to ensure that each other's body heat would keep one another warm. However, uh, Charles Penn did have a quarrel with Gaines, it is said, and Gaines subsequently quit his job working on the farm. However, due to the close nature of Emma and Gaines's relationship, it seems as though there was some attachment which led to Emma wanting Gaines to still be employed. It is implied by the witness that this relationship, at least on Emma's side, was platonic, but there's this underlying current of, well, that really permeates this report. Now, this was not the only witness statement that we have from this article. We've got a few more that I want to share because I think they are equally as interesting. So uh, Maggie Smith, who is the sister of Charles Penn, commented on the conduct between Gaines and Emma, saying that it was like lovers, that Gaines's bed was in the same room with Charles and his wife for a while and was afterwards removed. On one occasion, when we were on a visit to Charles, my husband and Charlie got up one morning and went to the river. Gaines then slept over Charles's room. I got up and went towards Mrs. Penn's room and heard a noise and went into the room and saw Gaines going out of it with his boots in his hands. I saw Mrs. Penn sweeping the room. She looked very much excited. She told me that if Charles ever crossed his path in the least way he intended to take his life, that her father had told her that Charles had better turn Gaines off or Gaines would kill him. Well, uh, so right there, we pretty much have a uh, smoking gun by today's standards. Can you imagine being in this courtroom and hearing this intense lover on husband violence that is purported to have taken place? Another testimony comes to that from William Smith, who is Maggie Smith's husband and Charles Penn's brother-in-law. He also talks about how um, he went to the river with Charles and Mrs. Penn was in bed and, and really pretty much recapitulates everything that Maggie said, just adding his additional perspective. Matt Brooks, who is Charles Penn's father, talks about how uh, Gaines and Penn had a falling out about the former leaving the latter in town. So it says that um, Gaines and I went to work together and Penn begged Gaines to come back and work for him. Gaines did not want to go back. He said that he liked Emma, but that he did not like Penn a damned bit. Gaines said that his brother Charlie had always accused him of being too intimate with Penn's wife. And if I go back there, I'm going to try damned harm. That Penn should treat him as he did or he would kill him. I'm not on good terms with Gaines. Had a difficulty about our partnership. Some more testimony that came out of the trial that is also pretty damning if we are to take it at face value is from John Simmons, who loaned his pistol to Gaines about the 1st of June and has not returned it. Uh, some more is that Mrs. Letty Chisholm said that the Monday before the killing, she saw a man pass her with a gun who was going towards Charles Penn's house. The man was tall, dressed in a black long coat, and uh, can't say who he was, though. 
James Bronner saw Gaines, but cannot say what day, yet it was about a week before the murder. Saw him on the road between the house and Antioch Church with a gun, but it was a plain shotgun. Do not think it was the same gun, think it was heavier, but cannot state positively. Butler Gore knows Gaines and worked with him at Roach's. Uh, asked him if he had a falling out with Penn. He said no and said that Penn said some words he did not like, but that he left before it became a quarrel. Heard Gaines make no threats. Ben Wallace says that on Sunday when Gaines left Ben's, Penn's house, he passed me on a private road with a double-barreled shotgun, a black valet, and a picture frame. That was about two or three weeks before the killing. Nearly everybody has a shotgun. Other witnesses also are reported to have testified, but it was either irrelevant or corroboratory. Uh, didn't really offer any additional testimony that was worth reporting. The trial really does sound like the stuff of our modern courtroom dramas, because at one point, the prosecuting attorneys outright ask if uh, Mr. Gaines and Mrs. Penn had a relationship, and it was uh, responded with a, that's an ungentlemanly question, and no gentlemanly lawyer would ask it. So uh, there you have that one. But I mean, I guess at least they asked. I don't know. It, it's difficult to look back on this trial and assume that it was done fairly and with equal representation and that it was not a presumed guilty verdict before anything really happened. I mean, you know, outside of cooperation from some close family members, it's tough to say if the testimonies even really represent reality or true facts or if it just seems like an easy mark, as it were, uh, for lack of a better term. But ultimately, the outcome of the trial is that Gaines is found guilty of murder and he is sentenced to life in the Kentucky Penitentiary, which is located here in Frankfurt. Obviously, this story is not lost totally to history. We've got really solid documentation because of the time period in which it occurred, and it was published in the original 1912 history of Franklin County, Kentucky. So people knew that it happened. It, w it wasn't a totally unknown tale. However, what I think surprised a lot of people was the later connection with the Bishop home. So seemingly this story, at least as the trial portrays it, as well as the events of the murder, indicate that, you know, the likely ghost who would be left behind from this tragic murder would maybe be that of the murdered, the gun-downed husband full of buckshot lying on the side of his farm. But no, in, in fact, the story that we're left with is that from the perspective of the wife. So how exactly does this ghost manifest? Or I guess to put it more pointedly, you know, what's the kind of so what of this ghost story that I have insinuated the bishops passed along to us? Before we go any further, we are kind of pivoting away from some of the more salacious facts here, and we're turning instead to the good old-fashioned haunted house narrative. And unsurprisingly, it begins with 
what we in academia call an interdiction, which is a fancy way of saying someone tells you not to do something. And here we are given the amazing interdiction from uh, Mr. Bishop himself, who talks about how after he purchased the home, he was working in a farm, stripping tobacco with some old guys right after we came. And they said, you all won't want to be there over a year. And they talked about the unexplained lights shining on the walls and other things. I just figured they were trying to scare me off, Bishop says. But he soon learns that this was not the case. And instead, things started to happen around the home, particularly to Barbara. He shares with then State Journal reporter Philip Case that Barbara would wake up in the night and see lights on the wall. She would awaken me and say, someone's turning around outside. I would get up to investigate and no one was turning around. Here she is is speaking specifically about a vehicle as though a vehicle is turning around in their driveway, which while more common in a lot of urban areas is not that normal in this part of the country because it is so isolated. You really have to try to get there. The lights often were seen on the inside of the bedroom, and again, they were interpreted as headlights shining in through the wall. Uh, Philip Case interestingly does say that the room where the lights were seen is the location where the wife witnessed the murder, which is not as plainly stated in the case testimony that we listened to. But uh, Reed Bishop goes on to share that one day his wife Barbara was ironing and there was a chain hanging on the door and it started swinging, but not from side to side, like the wind was blowing it or something. It would swing out parallel to the floor and fall back down. It would start and then stop. So the, the bishops began to believe or suspect that their sons were playing a prank on them. Uh, Keenan and Kevin were often the first accused when anything bizarre started happening in the house. The bishops would also smell sulfur, like the smell of striking kitchen matches, but when no one was around to be striking matches, she, Barbara Bishop, would also smell the strong scent of perfume, and she started to accuse her sons of breaking into her perfume bottles. The family began to bring over folks they believed to be sensitive to the paranormal, and those folks always stated that they could feel someone there. Something felt off about the home. Reed Bishop, the husband, he also shares with Philip Case that he really tried to experience the paranormal, but was never able to. He did eventually have one experience himself, which was around Christmas time. He had purchased some Christmas lights to decorate the outside of their home and was upset to learn that rather than the green lights he believed he had purchased, they were white. So he decided to start spray painting them and entered into a conversation with his family where they suggested that maybe that was an unwise 
task to take on. So he paused to go talk around to some people and find out if that was dangerous to do, learned that it wasn't, and returned to his task to continue spray painting the lights, but was surprised to find that they were missing and they were absolutely nowhere to be found. The next year, he went to go scoop out some extra dog food from a large container that they had and found the missing Christmas lights wrapped around the scoop inside the pail. He, of course, uh, accused his sons, first and foremost, who deny any and all involvement with these, quote, pranks. The final and probably most jarring report out of the Bishop home is a disembodied scream. So uh, Mr. Bishop, Reed Bishop's daughter-in-law, Leslie, who is married to their son, Keenan, says that she had a hard time originally believing in these paranormal events in the home, but she witnessed what she refers to as the scream, which is described as the most blood-curdling thing she's ever heard. Her mother would call it a belly scream. Leslie says that when she and Keenan were dating back in the early 80s, they would sometimes stay over, and Mrs. Bishop would put her up in what they called the room. It was just awful, she said at the sound. Once, I remember, when Keenan heard it, he thought someone was hurt out on the farm. He put on his boots and farm clothes and got his gun and went searching for someone or a coyote, which is known to make human-like noises, and hoped to find something, but he found nothing. The only other time I've heard a scream like that was once when I was involved in an automobile accident, she said. It came from a woman who was hurt in the other car. Leslie says there have been times too when doors have mysteriously been found to be locked or unlocked. Um, she talks about how there's, there's not really a reason to have locked doors in the country, especially that far out at this time period, as things were perceived to be very safe but they would continue to find doors locked or sometimes unlocked that had no reason to be that way. The sightings that the bishops shared with Case are not necessarily the most exciting ghost sightings, right? Like there's no disembodied people or, you know, exorcisms or uh, possessions or anything of that sort. In instead, it is a series of seemingly mundane events that are unexplainable, that are happening at a home out in the country that has a sordid and frightening past. This in and of itself is sort of a scary proposition. It's, it's one thing to say that, you know, oh, it's not that bad, this and this and this aren't happening in their home. But it's another to actually imagine yourself out in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by no one and nothing. Today, we're really connected. We've got cell phones. We're able to FaceTime our friends and family at a moment's notice. But back in the 80s, that wasn't the case, right? You have to think about the contemporary period of these recordings. You are out in the middle of nowhere, and the only thing connecting you to other people is a landline. So you better hope that if you call 911, they can find your house or they can find you before something bad happens. And if you're hearing things like horrible screaming in the night or lights are dancing all over the walls of your room, you might become concerned that there is somebody there. 
I want to pause here for a second and talk about the lights. I think this is a particularly interesting report, and I have spent a lot of time reading ghost stories and sightings of ghosts, and oftentimes floating lights are described as a supernatural or paranormal phenomenon. Think of the will-o'-wisp, which is a reported ghost or ghostly presence that is hanging out in marshy areas said to represent the spirits of the drowned. The will-o'-wisp is not a person who's got arms and legs. Instead, it's a floating ball of light. What might be interpreted as headlights here could be something more akin to this phenomenon. And it's hard for me to say, I'm not saying definitively if that's the case, but rather suggesting that the interpretation of these lights as headlights might actually be more akin to other paranormal sightings that are widely talked about today. Again, this is not to devalue the potential ghostly car pulling around their driveway, but instead to suggest that the narratives that are being told here are based on experience. And if you maybe are not experienced with the phenomenon of ghostly apparition lights, that reading something like that as car headlights makes sense and might spice up the story a little bit for those of us who are less intrigued by the idea of headlights on a bedroom wall. The most unfortunate thing about this story, or really series of stories, if you think about the assassination in the 1800s and the ghost stories in the 1970s and 80s, is that we're really left without a conclusion. We don't know for sure if George Gaines killed Charles Penn. We don't know for sure if the spirit of Emily or Emma Penn is haunting the Bishop home. We don't know for sure if the bishops are seeing supernatural or paranormal phenomena occur in their house. What we do know is that there is a home in Bald Knob, Kentucky that's made of old stones that sits along the Kentucky River on acres of beautiful land. What we do know is that there are reports of horrible incidences which have historically occurred there including the death of a man found filled with buckshot. What we do know is that there is a spirit of a young woman purportedly in the home, in the places where she would have lived her life, and most importantly, where she might have seen her husband murdered by her lover. Even though I have suggested a bevy of unknowns, I want to provide a few knowns here at the end of our time together. The first of these is that this episode is meant to bridge the previous season of the show where we only looked at supernatural events and this season of the show where we're turning our attention more solidly towards that of murders in Frankfurt and Franklin County. This isn't the only episode with supernatural phenomena sprinkled in or mixed in throughout. So if that is your particular cup of tea, I promise there is more coming. We are going to be spending our time looking at some bizarre and strange events here in our lovely home of Central Kentucky. 
This episode is produced and edited by me, Eleanor Haskin-Wagner. Research for this episode was done both by Eleanor, me, weird to say my own name, and by Frankfurt and Franklin County's historian, Beth Shields. Both of us are employed by the Capital City Museum, which is open from 10 to 4, Monday through Saturday. If this type of research is of interest to you, I encourage you to come on down to the museum to check out our very extensive archival collection. We also have a really wonderful digital collection, which can be found on our website, www.capitalcitymuseum.com. Follow along on our Facebook page at Cap City Museum for fun events and announcements about upcoming programming or things that are going on. I hope that you have enjoyed this first episode of the season, and I'm looking forward to sharing more of Kentucky Deceased.